But I did mention to you last week when we talked about the parable, the three parables that Jesus told in Luke 15 about being lost, which came from comments and a phone call that we had, uh, that there were two other major parables that Jesus talked about that are very significant. One is the parable of the sower, which we'll talk about today. The other is the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm not sure which is my favorite of the of those two large parables. But I do want to talk with you this morning about the parable of the sower for several reasons. Number one, it explains a lot of what you actually see in life. But it also is helpful because it explains to you why Jesus taught like he did. This is the place where Jesus explains why he spoke in parables and why he did the things he did with respect to his teaching. Although we're, we're used to hearing this, many of us are since we're children about different parables, this wasn't a typical way of, of teaching in Jesus' time. And especially it wasn't common uh, among the scribes and Pharisees to teach this way when they spoke. They were expecting something very different and that's why often many of them dismissed what Jesus said because he wasn't doing it in a way that they wanted to or like them. But he had a reason for what he was doing. And this parable of the sower also enlightens us. And the more we think about Jesus' teachings, if we begin to take them internally, we realize the challenges that are set before us in this story of the man that goes out to sow. Now, I made a statement uh, years ago uh, talking about this. Not all of us even here. It was way back that I think this parable should be called, I said, I'm like, well, people call this a parable of the sower, but I think it probably should be called the parable of the soils. Because we're really talking about the different kinds of soil. Well, the only trouble with that brilliant observation of mine is that Jesus called it the parable of the sower. So there you go. You know, uh, maybe I'm not as brilliant as I thought I was at that time. But in any event, let's go to, let's go to Luke chapter 8. And let's read this parable. I, we're going to do a little reading this morning with this and explaining. There's so much that could be said about this, and I, I feel, again, that like saying, essentially, we're going to be kind of skimming across the top of the surface, getting some of the main points with you, uh, but there's so much more that could be said and should be said about this. It said in verse 4 when, of Luke chapter 8, it says in verse 4, when a great multitude had gathered and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. Now, stop there for a A parable, we don't use this word parable too often, it is a com, com, combination Greek word, parabolos. The para part we get uh, parallel, or for some of you paramilitary, you can understand that more, uh, laying alongside of something. Parallel lines run alongside each other. And so para means alongside of. The BLE part in Greek is balos, which means to throw or to cast something. And so this is a, a parable is a teaching that you would throw down alongside another te- another observation so they could understand that. So you give them a parallel or a, a different way of thinking about something that's difficult to make it understandable and simple by telling a parable. So Jesus was teaching big concepts, a lot to be said about them, difficult ones. The scribes and Pharisees would do all of this kind of teaching way up in the clouds. Jesus came along and told a parable about it to tell them what it was about. So that's what the word parable means. It was something different. Although they use them in common in common usage, this was his style. He says, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside and it was trampled down and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on a rock. As soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on 
good ground and sprang up, yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, he who has, has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, Jesus refers to something that we don't do today. I, I lived in Illinois for some years and out there, the big, the big in the springtime, they till up the land a little bit if they haven't tilled it in the fall and, and they bring out the cultivators and the planters, the big spread th- things is, seem like as wide as this building nearly and they run through the fields and those, those modern ones, in, depending on what kind of plant they're planting, will inject a seed into the ground every so often along that rail, and they just go down through the fields, and they inject the seed in the ground, it covers it up, and sometimes they even have fertilizer in there with it. It's all done in an automated process, very much different than this time. So if you're planting a seed today in a big field, that's how it'd be planted. But back then, the sower had a bag of seed, and he took a handful, and he slung it out and tried to cast it out into the field, he walked along the field, uh, to cast and spread the seed. Not a very efficient way of doing it, but that's how they did many of the crops. And so he says here, and they could see this, obviously, that, that some of this, uh, some of these seeds fell on the wayside. The wayside is where you would walk in these fields, probably. It isn't necessarily a road. It could be. But they would, they would walk on the edges or down the middle of these fields to, and, and the ground had become compacted and hard. And it was where it would be exposed to the ground. They couldn't cover it up easily. And so he says the birds would come along and grab all the seed. And you can see this in modern planting operations. The birds follow along, you see. And uh, he, then some of it fell on rocky soil. Uh, rock would be, this is the idea that there's below, just below the surface here is a rock layer, hard layer, and so there's no moisture. Maybe moist on top, a little bit if it's just rain, but it doesn't stay moist. And so when the roots try to grow, there's nowhere for them to grow because it's got a rock underneath it. Uh, you see, we have in this very lot right here that we're on, there's a hard pen underneath this ground here about a foot and a half, two feet down. It's a lot of Port St. Lucie is like that. It dries up quickly. So when we first... They built these ponds out here for drainage according to the county regulations. So it, they just flooded everywhere because it was a hard pan. And you can realize this because when I watched them, when they dug the septic tank, which is over there, they brought that big uh, uh, backhoe down through the dirt. It went down. You could see it cut through this layer of gray clay-like material. And the water on the top just rolled, run out of that. It was like going over a waterfall. So on top of the surface, maybe this far down or this far, it was wet, and when we cut down through it, that hard pan, it all ran off. So they got we brought machinery out here in these two ponds on either side, dug out the center, so it would get through the hard pan, and now they drain a lot better. And so picture that just a little bit below the surface, or maybe partly exposed. Now you have this rock, and therefore it can't grow very good on that area. That's why we till things up. And then some fell among the thorns. On the edges of the field or if you're low in the middle, the thorns grow up with it and, and they kind of choke it out. It never really re- produces the kind of crop it should. It may produce some crop, but not really anything like it should. But others fell on the good ground. They've been tilled. It was moist. It wasn't blocked off. didn't have any of these other features. And now it yields a crop. So Jesus tells this parable and he doesn't say anything else about it at that time. Like he did a lot of his parables. And so the disciples, and you can read more about this in the book of Matthew. I think it's chapter 9, I think it is in Matthew. I have to look. I can't remember. Oh, it's 13. Matthew 13. Sorry. The disciples ask him here in Luke, 
what does this parable mean? We don't understand what you're saying. And he said, to you it's been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables, that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. He says, I'm speaking this way because some people aren't going to understand it and they'll go away. Those who want to understand will think about what I'm saying and they will come to understanding. But to the rest, they're going to go away because they don't want to pay attention to what I'm saying. Now that seems harsh. I thought Jesus came to save the whole world, which he did. And the gospel is to be preached to every creature under heaven. But this is telling us here that there are some people that don't really want to hear what Jesus has to say. And that's what the parable of the soil is about. And Jesus even taught this way. He taught in such a way that certain kinds of people would not want to listen to him or be impressed. I've heard about, uh, you take a man like J.W. McGarvey, a great preacher in the 1800s, a scholar, friends of presidents, friend of presidents. And he would he, he preached around, and supposedly this uh, fellow from somewhere in Kentucky went to hear him. Spent a long time, go see him, came back, and they said, well, what'd you think? He said, I wasn't very impressed. I understood every word he said. So he was expecting, since he was a great preacher and scholar, that when he went there, he'd be impressed with big words and big concepts. He wouldn't even understand it because it was so great, and he'd enjoy that. But the fact that he understood what the man was saying turned him off. And that's the way it is about some people. You hear them, and they're simple in what they say, but sometimes we're so wanting some intellectual thing that we dismiss the importance of what's being said. That's what Jesus was doing here. He wasn't teaching. Remember they told, said about Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Never a man spoke like this. He was teaching so different than the Pharisees who were teaching to impress people with their great learning. And his writing and his teaching didn't have 10 footnotes by different scholars to back it up. There are people that will not listen to anything I say or write because I don't have all the scholarly footnotes and can't quote other big famous people to back up what I'm saying. They're not going to listen to my words. I have to back it up with 10 other people before they pay attention. Well, whatever good there is in what I say, if there is any, they're not going to get it, are they? Because they're expecting something different. Now, this is explained a little differently, or at least expanded on the book of Matthew. Matthew has this parable too. And so it comes up here in book Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. Disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? And the answer said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Now, here's what he's saying. The, the disciples heard this. And when they didn't understand it, they came to Jesus and said, explain this to us. We want to know what you're saying. Explain it. He wasn't condemning them for that. He was praising them for that. Because the rest of the multitude that heard it, many of them went away. They didn't know it, understand either, but they didn't bother to ask. They just went away. It didn't impress them. They didn't want to think about it. They didn't really want to know what it meant. But he says, I'm, I'm telling these things to you because you will ask. And because you will seek to understand it's been given to you to understand them, but to them it has not been given. There's a certain kind of person, unfortunately it's hard to say this, that the gospel has not been given to. It's for everybody. But if you are proud and arrogant, if you are so eaten up with your own desires and lusts that you're blinded by them, the gospel will make no sense to you. The gospel will not help you. Jesus says, if a man will not come and lay down his life, he cannot be my disciple. Not will not, cannot be my disciple. 
Because a true disciple of Jesus is one who's willing to lay down his life and get and give his life over to Jesus Christ. Without that, there's no understanding of these things. Now, he says here in verse 12, a verse you've heard me quote recently, other things, whoever has, to him more will be given. And he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is not socialism, by the way. Jesus was not social. I kind of jokingly use this verse to show you that Jesus isn't socialist. What's he saying here? To him who has, more will be given. To him who has not, whatever he has will be taken away. If you don't have the right spirit in you to start with on some level, then even the knowledge you have will be ruined and destroyed by, by your attitude. If you have the right attitude, even if you don't have much, you'll be given more. Because the abundance he's talking about is the abundance of a of a, the right spirit. Jesus began his ministry in the Sermon on the Mount by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They don't have an egotistical, totally self-centered attitude about their own life, and that's who the kingdom of heaven is designed for. We're going to preach it to everybody. We'll just say I'm just show you in just a moment, because... The preaching and teaching of the gospel. You don't know who these people are. You don't know who, what soil a person's heart is. And the trouble is the soil can change from time to time. At one point in people's lives, they're not receptive at all to the gospel because they want to go out and party and have fun and commit fornication and be involved in intoxication. That's what they're interested in. They don't want to hear the gospel. They refuse to hear it. It doesn't mean anything to them. But then life hits them. They may be older, other things happen. And there's that judgment of God, as it were, that comes to them in their life, and they realize, I need something different. Where am I going to find this? And they begin to seek the Lord. We see this over and over again. So the soil can change. The person can change. And that's why he says, you need to do good unto, do good and follow my example, he says, so that men may glorify my name my name in the day of visitation. The day of visitation is the day when life comes tumbling down on top of people. It's a day of the judgment of God in their life. And now because they've seen your good works, Jesus says, they'll glorify me because now they realize what you have that they don't have. That's the role we play oftentimes in the church of living a, 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 a humble, orderly life based on the principles of Jesus Christ true goodness, true morality, kindness, and gentleness. We have wisdom that's shown in what we do and say. And people often reject that in your workplace until they lose a child or until their, their life collapses or until they're arrested for their behavior. And now they think, who can help me? And they look to you because they say, that person knows something that I don't. They've seen your good works and they glorify God because of that. And that's how the soil can change. Now, Jesus says, yes, those who have this attitude will get more. Those who do not have it. Now, look, I've talked about this verse many times before. I'll just briefly mention this because we've got a lot to cover here. The people that come to Bible classes most of the time are not the ones that need the Bible classes. They already know the ones who I wish would come, who don't know, who need encouragement and help, won't come. I've been fighting about this, thinking about this for forty-five over 45 years now as a preacher. 
Sometimes when I was younger, I'd get up and berate the church who was here because there's nobody here. Well, what good is that? They're here. I've changed that behavior. The ones who need to hear what I'm saying are not here. So why am I going to berate you about that? There are people that need to be here this morning because they need whatever little bit of encouragement and wisdom they can get from the Scriptures. They need the encouragement of you other brothers and sisters. They need that even more than many of you do. But where are they? They're not here. They're doing something else that they think is much more important. Probably sleeping in. Watching sports on TV. Going somewhere else. Not important to them. To him that hath, it will be given. To him that hath not, it will be taken away. And those people oftentimes just drift further and further from the Lord. They slowly drift away. Like a boat that's been tied, untied from the mooring. Therefore, I speak to them in parables in verse 13, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So they hear what I'm saying. They see me, but they don't, they don't really get it. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing you will hear and shall understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. And the ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. They could be healed. I would seek to heal them. I'm speaking the word, but they don't want it. Maybe they will, lest they should do this. But blessed are your eyes, for they see. In your ears, for they hear. For surely I say to you that many prophets and righteous men deserve, desire to see what they see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The old prophets who lived before Christ didn't get to hear, hear and see him teach these things. They desired that, but they didn't see it. But you can. You fishermen here I'm talking to, you can have this. And you know, that's the great thing about it. The great wisdom of God doesn't come through Harvard Divinity School. It comes to a person who will listen to the plain reading of the scriptures and try to understand. That's who it comes to. And that's why there's the wisdom of men and there's the wisdom of God. You don't have to be a scholar or brilliant to understand the wisdom of God. You have to let that word sink in. And this is the thing that I find, even as an old man now, the more I read the words, even if I, I'm going to do some sermons on uh, the, the red passages in the Bible that are just Jesus' words. Because, <laughs> Wow. They're so powerful and they challenge me as an older man. And so what I've been thinking, and I've read them all my life, but now I feel more challenged than ever before from those words because understanding slowly builds on itself. But he says, you want to understand your heart is right toward God and therefore you can get it and so forth. Now, let's just, let's go look at this. Jesus says the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. This is an incredibly important scripture for this church here. Because our whole approach to the world is based on this passage, whether you know it or not. The reason we have a website from the beginning called We Are Just Christians, the reason our radio show is called that, the reason many of the things that we hand out have this basic theme, that we are simply trying to be a New Testament church, is because of this passage. The whole thing we're trying to do is plant the seed from the first century in the 21st century heart. Amen. So that the same fruit that was pre was predicted back then will happen here. Amen. They have uh, these seeds they sell as heirloom seeds now. Well, I read the other day that they, they more than once, they, they'll go digging around over there in Egypt or somewhere and they'll find a jar of seeds. And so they plant these seeds. And they get a, sometimes they get things to come up. 
So they find a jar of wheat in Pharaoh's tomb. They take some of the seeds, they plant them, and they get some plants to come up. Now, they don't get just wheat when they do that. They can go get wheat out of some of the other places in the world here, our modern wheats. But what they get is Pharaoh's wheat. That's what makes it different. It's not just wheat, it's Pharaoh's wheat that you get. And so when you take the word of God and the word of God only and you plant that in human hearts, I don't care what generation they live in, what time period, what country they come from, what culture. When you plant the word of God in the right soil, you will get exactly what Jesus intended for it to be. You'll get a Christian when you do that. And that's all you'll get. Now, when you take that seed and plant the Methodist discipline with that or the catechisms and all those things, creed books, you get something different than what Jesus planted. That's really what we are trying to do as a church in many ways in our efforts at evangelism and teaching is to understand that the seed is the word of God. That's what we should be planting. So this isn't about a reformation. This isn't about reforming the Roman Catholic Church to make it better like Martin Luther wanted. This is about going back to the beginning and planting the seed again, just like the apostles did. And we believe we can do that. We, we do it with human failures involved. But that's the principle. This is the right thing to do, to plant the Word of God again in this century or whatever century that you live in so we can get the same result. So that's all I can ever ask of you if you listen to the words of the Scriptures is to be just a Christian and to follow that Word of God wherever it may take you to do that. Now then Jesus goes on to say then, when the sower sows this seed out here, he says those by the wayside, the ones out here where people are walking, the ground is hard and, and they, they don't have, it's not till, so the soil, seeds fall down in among the, among the soil. These are the ones who hear, they hear with their ears, but before they can process it, the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. And so you have some soil that you can throw the seed at. And it has nowhere for the seed to plant. Can't find, as I say, any purchase in that soil. Because there's a hardness of the heart, they deflect it away. But since the gospel has miracles in it, and they're presupposed because they're such a scientific person that they don't believe in miracles, they reject the gospel altogether without ever listening or really hearing it because the soil is hardened and they can't, it cannot penetrate that. When, when, uh, when Paul was trying to teach the people on Mars Hill, the Greeks, as he spoke there in Mars Hill to these philosophers, many of them were philosophers, he came through that whole sermon about the unknown God at the end, he said God was prepared to judge the world through his son, Jesus Christ, whom he has raised from the dead. And it said, at this word, some mocked. And they listened to what he said. But as soon as these Greeks heard the word resurrection, they didn't believe in resurrections. It was impossible. No, no resurrection. They stopped listening altogether to what he was saying. And they turned away. Others, it said, believed. Their hearts weren't hardened. So he says here the birds come along and they just, before it can ever take root, they snatch it away. The birds here is the devil planting ideas in people's minds ahead of time about what they should expect from, from religion or the word or what they already believe in their culture and they snatch it away. This is so common today with the modern mind thinking it's got all these scientific advances and technology and we're so much, we're so much smarter than people of another age because we have a cell phone. Look, if you were that smart, you wouldn't need a smartphone. You could have a dumb phone to be fine if you were that smart. 
And I'm a guy with the best smartphone in the building probably. But, you know, smartphones are for dumb people. Dumb phones are for smart people. But we're so smart. Oh, no, those 2,000-year-old ideas. C.S. Lewis called this chronological snobbery. We're eat up with it in this day and age. That because something happened way back, you know, that's so 2001. You know, we, we don't, or to young people, something happened last year is so old, shouldn't be paid attention to at all. So if I turn on 98.7 Classic Rock, oh, they really don't want to listen to that because that's back way, that's back in ancient times. The oldies they play on their station are two years, six months old, two months old. Chronological snobbery. The worst part is they think what they have is better. That's the most mind-boggling thing. But anyway, see, that attitude planted in the heart, unless somebody from an important college or the right political party with the right credentials, unless a healthcare professional says it, it must not be correct. Experts. We're so eat up with believing whatever experts say. Aren't you tired of that by now? I think you should be getting tired of that. We have to trust what experts say. Well, you know what? Most experts don't believe what Jesus said at all. So there you go. Whatever the experts think that they pawned off on you is the new and great idea, that's the seed. That, that puts your heart hardened. And when the seed of God, uh, word of God comes, the devil can just snatch it away. You'll never penetrate the surface. And then you have those on the rock. This rocky soil here. Who when they hear, they receive the word with joy. But these have no root who believe for a while in the time of temptation fall away. So on the rock, with a rock underneath the soil here, not really showing much underneath, it'll actually hold moisture temporarily better than the other soil somewhat. And so the seed you put there might sprout real quickly and look great, but there's nothing there. The water dries up. There's no way for the root to grow down and get more water, and the plant will immediately wither and die. I've seen this in plants without knowing what's underneath the soil. You see this all the time, and they had seen this. And he says, these are they who, they hear the word, oh, it's great, but they don't have any root in them. And then when things are tempting, they fall away. I could tell you dozens of stories of people like this that I've met, situations. It's so heartbreaking to see. Someone who receives the gospel with great joy, but very shortly, they're nowhere to be found. Amen. Back where they used to be. And this is what it is. Now look, I don't say that to be critical. It's difficult to be a Christian. It's hard. And and uh, it's a hard way to go. It's challenging every day. But I tell people when I baptize them, usually tell them this, you can expect to be tempted right away. The devil wants you back. You can be tempted. I remember we, my father had, he, I was 26 years old when my father was baptized. My first son was born 25 or 26, something like that. No, 23. He, he had grown up a Roman Catholic said, I've been baptized, never would do anything about that. But he had slowly changed over the years of my mother's influence and so forth. And the week when my son Matthew was born, he's turned 45 yet, so it would be almost X number of years from today probably. My brother David came to, down to see the new baby, and he, he asked, talked to my father again about being baptized. My father said no. But after my brother went home, he told my mother, he said, call him up and tell him, when he comes back here next weekend, if he'll come, he can. I want to be baptized. 
He said he had the guts to talk to me about it. So there you go. I talked to him, but not like my brother did. And so my brother baptized him in the Jupiter Inlet the next weekend. And um, there was, I don't know where I was going with this now. My thoughts and emotions have carried me away. But, but oh, I know what I was going to say. So my father was very happy. My brother said he came up out of the water saying, we have one more to go. He met his mother, who was a devout Roman Catholic, who had been coming closer and closer to the gospel in the months preceding this, moving away from what she'd been taught as a child because she she'd begun to read the Bible. And she began to understand things and see things. Mike, you, you know, the Bible says Jesus had brothers and sisters and it gives her names. She was so excited. Yeah, I know that. Well, it's, it says it right there. They told me he, she was a virgin. See, she was getting the light was coming on from this. And so six weeks after my, he was baptized, his mother fell over dead with a stroke. We couldn't get to Ohio fast enough to even see her before she died. My brother had made plans to move to Ohio to be with her, to teach her. She died before he could even move. And I thought, ah, there's my father's temptation. There it is, right there. What's he going to do now? Is he going to go back on what he did? Or is he going to go forward? Well, my father went forward. And from there, realized the truth of whatever it was, put everything in God's hands in that situation, trusted the Lord, and went on with his faith. He didn't let that fact that his mother died without being baptized stop him from doing what was right in his life. And that's a very good thing. But a lot of people don't have that. They fall away. I remember I had taught a young man and his wife. I met them through their mother. They were also former Catholics, and he become kind of attached to me and Judy. We They did, and we talked. And one day he, call, he calls me up and says, I want to be baptized. It was Wednesday afternoon. We already had a study. And took him over to the building, baptized he and his wife, and they were so excited. This is an intelligent young man. He had the world ahead of him. He, he was, I was so excited about this because of, of the ability and potential he had. We had a class set up. The next day after this, he got a call from work. He was a pretty important person in the company. He was getting promoted and sent on the road that day. A big raise. What he'd been seeking. And I said, well, when are we going to study, Gilbert? And he, he said, I don't know. Well, you know what? I never saw him again. Ever. Never saw him again. He never would return my calls. He was gone on his new big adventure, making lots of money and doing what he wanted to do. The devil came and snatched it away, but that was, uh, that was where there's no root. Believe for a while in a time of temptation, fall away. Now, the other thing I want to say about, is that you? Is that going to happen to you? Is that going to, it could happen to you. I want to say this. The Bible's a, a, a modern Protestant theology is that once you're saved and you believe, you can't ever fall away. That's what John Calvin and, and evangelical churches, a lot of them teach. They're all smart people, not bad people, but I just want you to believe what Jesus says. Jesus says, these are they who receive the word of joy, who believe for a while and in time of temptation do what? Fall away. Jesus didn't say, well, they believe and they can't fall away. You can believe and fall away. And you know that's true because Jesus said it. And so you can lay a lot of that other theology aside and say, I'm going to believe what Jesus says about this, that there are people who do believe and still fall away. Oh, well, it wasn't real belief. Well, that Jesus isn't saying, well, it wasn't real belief. 
He just says they believe for a while. So yes, you can be unbeliever for a while. You can be a believer for a while. You can go back to being an unbeliever for a while. That's up to you what you do. But believe what Jesus says about this. Now then there are those on the rock. These are ones that fall among, that says on the rock, should say among the thorns. We're just going to change that right now. I'm, I'm, because here's what's going to happen. Someday, you know, this sermon is going to go down in the annals of preaching as one of the greatest sermons ever preached. And I don't want to make the same mistake again. So, if I ever use these notes again. See how simple that was? Beautiful. So, the ones that fall among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with, I think go out means that they start living their life again. Become a Christian, they hear the word, they go out and start living their life, and they're choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and they bring no fruit to maturity. When you throw seeds, good seeds, in among the weeds and the grass, and let them all grow up together, the seeds often sprout and they grow, but they never produce the kind of plant that can be had if you get rid of the weeds, get rid of the thorns. Now, this one, among the four soils, this one is really a problem for a lot of modern Christians. These people are believers in this case. They are Christians. They've accepted Christ. They're they're actually trying to be a Christian. But in their life, they've allowed all these weeds to grow up with them. He lists them as cares, riches, and pleasures of life. Cares are concerning the anxieties of life, the things we call stress, the things that we have to do, all the, all the cares about making money and doing this and doing that, being busy, getting your kids in 14 sports so you can never have time to uh, go be with the Lord or whatever you're going to do. Wives and husbands who are so busy, they can't nurture their marriage and they get choked out. Pretty soon they're talking to their mate or acting just like they would anybody else in the world because they're choked out with the cares of life. And riches, seeking riches. And and not only rich, I'm like the guy in Sound of Music or the match. I, lo- I love rich people. I love the way I live when I'm with rich people, you know. And here, you know, you've got this riches. Riches are great to have, but people do stuff with the money and all the pleasures that go with that, all the things you can do. It's not wrong. I love having money. Money will solve a lot of your problems. People say money doesn't solve any problems. That's wrong. Money solves problems. You give me give me ten thousand bucks and I'll show you some problems that money can solve. Money can't solve the most important problem that you have, though the most critical problems that you have. But it certainly can make life easier, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But this is a prop. The riches are choking out spiritual life. The riches aren't being used to enhance spirituality; that are being used in place of spirituality. Because we trust those riches. And then there's just enjoying life. There's lots of people in, in poor St. Lucie and St. Lucie County today. They're not bad people that they're out doing actively wicked, wrong things. But they are just enjoying life to the exclusion of serving the Lord. And that's where modern American society is. It isn't that everybody's out just doing terribly wicked things all the time. They're just not serving the Lord and not focusing on what he would have them to do, which sometimes isn't so different. It's just what the focus is. And so therefore, they don't bring any fruit to maturity. 
I, I, I see people like that. I just pray that they're given a bunch of the treasury because that leaves one thing they can do if they're rich. I kind of say that jokingly. But they bring no fruit. You see them year after year. These folks have not grown. They're not stronger. They're facing the same problems, or in fact, maybe even worse problems than they were when they were younger. They've made no strides of being firmer in their faith. There's been no expansion of their Bible knowledge that actually leads to a change in their life. They, they talk the same way, act the same way as they did before they became a Christian because they've been choked out. This is the deceitfulness of riches. And then you have the good ground. These are the ones, the seeds that fell on the good ground and those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, they keep it and bear fruit with patience. Bear fruit. The fruit here is not just the fact that they teach other people to be Christians uh, or bear fruit in that way of making other Christians, but bear fruit in their life. The fruits of the Spirit that come into their life. They, they put on meekness and gentleness, humility, long-suffering, patience, kindness. They put on all those things. You see a great change in their being and how they relate to other people on the good that they do other people. You see a great change in them. And Jesus says these are the ones who the seed falls on this good ground. It doesn't produce fruit overnight. That was always disappointing me as a kid. My dad makes his plant. I read a little packet. And I'm looking at, I'm looking at corn here. You know, I want some corn. It's cold in a while. Getting warm. I want some corn. 90 days to bear the corn. 90 days. I want corn now. 90, 60 days to get a tomato. Right, Garrett, however long it is. You know, and you look at, I would look at, when I started buying from Mungar, I look, which one gives me the stuff faster? You know, I can look at all the seeds. I want the ones that are going to give me the fruit faster. So this isn't overnight fruit. It's born. It's a long time. A lot of little small doses of nutrients go into that seed. It draws them slowly over a period of time. And interesting enough, the more the plant grows, the more it can draw from the soil. So this is an exponential process. You start out not being able to get as much as other people from Bible classes, from your own reading, from prayer. You don't get as much as you want. But if you keep growing, you start getting more and more. And then you're able to do more and more because it's an exponential process of growth. Now, all of us are one of those kinds of soils at one time or today. We've been different soils in our past. The time of my life when I basically became an atheist, mostly because I didn't want to do what I knew the Bible said I should be doing in my life. I was tired of being told what to do. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And I was like that rocky soil, or the birds would just come and snatch anything away. And I didn't want to do, and I wasn't going to do it. Luckily, it didn't last too long. Got slapped around a little bit, and was able to, to try to do better. But that still comes back. Because I'm just rebellious at heart. What kind of soul are you, though? Are you, are you this, we all have to think we're the good ground. And maybe sometimes your life you have been, maybe other times you're not. You let your life go astray to pursue the things of this world. And in so doing that, that's all good and well, but you've left the Lord behind. You've left other people behind. Or you just don't want to care what God says. Most people that become atheists or unbelievers, in my experience, don't do so because they've done a great intellectual study and figured all that out. They become unbelievers and they don't want to be associated with church because church means they have to change, have to admit that they're a sinner. They need to, it needs to go deep. 
And I'll tell you something else that's kind of sad. Sometimes the people that need the healing of Jesus Christ the most are the ones that are most resistant to it. They need it the most. They're kind of like the guy that has fallen on the ground and not got the breath knocked out of him. My wife has lived such a sheltered life. She's never had the breath knocked out of her. I've got to figure out how to get that arranged sometime. Maybe not now. She's getting a little old now, but she just needs to experience getting the breath knocked out and then having all your, oh, you okay, you okay, get up. And you, you just want to kill everybody. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You're hurting and you don't know what's going on and they, they all just want to pat you on the back and say it's great. You want to kill them all because, and this is what people are. They get hurt by things that happen to them. Not even their own fault. Things have happened to them. Unjust, unfair things, wrong things. And they curl up in a ball and they don't want to hear what the gospel has to say. They don't want anybody to help them. And they turn away. That's sad. That's the ones who need the gospel the most. If you've been damaged by life, by other people, you're the one that needs the gospel the most, if I can say it that way. You need the healing of the gospel. That can be brought to you, to be forgiven, to know who you are, to be loved by God and people around you. You have to let people love you, though. You have to let them help you, and that's difficult to do. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And there it is. Do you have ears to hear? Some people do. Some people don't. Some people get rid of the ears, and some people gain the ears. Do you want to hear what the gospel has to say to you? Let me tell you something. James says the word of God is a mirror. And that is not good. Well, the mirror's nice looking as me. The mirror, you know, is a friend. But then I get a little closer and I say, oh, well, your eyes are bad. Right? I've told you that's why old men have hair growing out of their ears and nose. Because they can't see it. And their wife can't either. Okay? To even tell them. I saw a picture yesterday. It's... Uh, this guy was, India was holding his ear hair out about 12 inches. He, he was in the Guinness, he was smiling because he's in the Guinness Book of World Records. Okay, if that's what you got going for you, ear hair. But sometimes we, we love looking in the mirror, but sometimes we look closer and closer. We don't like what we see. The Word of God's going to do this to you. Do you have ears to hear? Do you have eyes to see what it shows you? And then do something about it. Appreciate you listening. Our time is going to go on and on here, but we want to this morning close our service by singing this song that Gary selected, Do You Know My Jesus? And we'll do that as a means of encouraging you to come to the front this morning if we can help you and pray with you, get you back on the right track, open your heart up to God. This morning, maybe you need to be baptized into Christ for remission of your, for, for remission of your sins. We can help you with that too. Right now, today, you can become a Christian and start down this path. If we can help you with this, you come right down to the front. As we can and sing.